Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. It's possible that your grand return to socializing has been an unbridled triumph, something so rewarding and immersive that you've had no time to reflect on it. Or perhaps there's an asterisk attached to your fun, a realization of how much mental and emotional agency you lost during the pandemic. I happen to be in the latter camp. While there's a big difference between being alone and being lonely, one can be rewarding while the other can be unbearably painful, there's increasing evidence that extended periods of either can take a significant toll on your mental and physical health. Essayist Elisa Gabbard writes about the psychological impact of lockdowns and social distancing in the July issue of Harper's. I spoke to her about her own experiences and our shared struggle to reassemble ourselves as American society continues to open up. In preparation for this, I reread a couple of essays in The Unreality of Memory. And the first essay in that collection is called Magnificent Desolation. You write about the spectacle of disaster, which is almost encouraged by the ubiquity of cell phone cameras. And we didn't have a spectacle with the COVID-19 disaster. We had an absence of spectacle. And without that, I don't think we had really public grieving in the way we w- we did after 9-11 or other very public disasters. Or even, I think a lot of people didn't understand how serious it was. And unfortunately, some of those people were in office and making decisions about how the pandemic was going to be managed. So have you thought about COVID-19 in those terms? I have thought about it in those terms so much. <laughs> yeah, I I was really troubled by that. The fact that there's there's no way to picture the pandemic in a way outside of our own visual memories based on whatever our individual circumstances were, I feel like there's no shared cultural visual vocabulary for COVID the way we have always had for other disasters and to our detriment to some extent, because I think those visual reference points, um, the way we have a visual reference point for the Challenger explosion or for 9-11, you know, in, in a way those become very reductive and replace what could be a much larger and more complicated story. But with COVID, yeah, it's it's almost like there's nothing simple for us even to agree on now. You know, forget how how corrupted that's going to be in the future. Like right now, none of us have a real sense of the scale of what we've been through. It's like how can we process it when we don't even know what we're processing? I, I've thought about it just so, so, so much. The numbers are so large and abstract. It's really impossible to grasp. Yeah. And I mean, even just looking through the Harper's archive, you know, looking back to the Spanish flu, there aren't any pieces specifically about the Spanish flu. There's maybe one or two that reference it. I mean, and it's not like there weren't personal essays back then. It was just 
people, maybe it was in Harper's Weekly, which is a, which was a separate publication published weekly from the monthly magazine. I don't know, but it's, uh, there's this absence. Yeah, it's funny that that's not more present in literature in general. Right. I mean, both world wars are were sort of the subjects of 20th century literature. Right. And yeah, the, the Spanish flu is just kind of like this little blip. Even though it, a huge percentage of the world's population died. And it, and it went on for years. Yeah. And I notice now more than I ever did that it does kind of come up as this very brief aside often in um, like histories of the time. I I recently read So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell. And I believe that that novella is very autobiographical. And so, you know, I, I kind of I take the narrator of that novel to essentially be Maxwell or Maxwell Standin. And his mother died of the Spanish flu. So there is that like haunting presence, but I probably wouldn't have remembered that detail about that book if it if I hadn't read it after COVID. Or, or I guess we should say during COVID. Right. I don't know when or if there ever will really be an after. Yeah. That that's the other that uh, not much to say about that now. Okay. <laughs> Let's table that. <laughs> There's no good answer to that one. Um, and the other thing about that I thought really, that was really interesting about Magnificent Desolation is that, you know, you talk about the phenomenon of survivor's guilt, which we're all familiar with, but there's also survivor's thrill. Mm-hmm. And I wonder to what extent that shapes those absences in literature or even in what we're seeing now where people are just like, well, time to go back out. And there's no real thought put into publicly grieving together, sort of processing it collectively. I mean, part of that is obviously the time we live in because we're all so atomized, but it's also, you know, perhaps it's just the thrill of, you know, it was really bad. It was really bad, but we we made it through. Yeah. The first few times I kind of went out after being fully vaccinated and started seeing friends and family that I hadn't seen and in many cases a year and a half, I would often say like, we made it, we survived. But that's just so inadequate to <laughs> the actual experience. The writer Mike McGinnis has been writing like a substack about his experience of kind of life after COVID. And his most recent newsletter was sort of about that feeling of just wanting something more. You know, I feel like when we first started to see the vaccines roll out and around January, we envisioned something more spectacular about this summer, some moment of yes. catharsis. <laughs> and it's just starting to feel like that's never going to happen. Yeah. It's a shame because it it seems like, I mean, based on my own experience and the experiences you write about in the piece, you know, these are some pretty serious psychological effects, not just the phenomenon of loneliness, but how social isolation affects the human body. And I mean, it would be good, I think, if you could list some of those effects for our listeners. And also if, you know, there's a question here about why they are so little known in the first place, and so little shared, especially when, as you say, loneliness was already an epidemic before the pandemic. 
with one in five people finding it, quote, a major source of unhappiness in their lives. Yeah, you know, the reason that I I started working on this essay is because I didn't really comprehend why I felt so bad all the time <laughs> last year. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in some ways, it's obvious, like the worst year for everybody in living memory. But in another sense, like I was okay. I... I didn't get sick. I didn't lose my job. I didn't really lose anybody in my close circle. So there was a sense like I should feel better. I should feel more gratitude and and peace and and patience. But I had an involuntary <laughs> uh, feeling of I I don't want to say despair. That seems too hyperbolic, but I just felt terrible all the time. And I couldn't figure out exactly why. You know, I don't think of myself as an extrovert exactly. <laughs> um, I, I already worked from home and, you know, I'm a writer. Like this, these things require a lot of solitude and a lot of, a lot of just being home. But of course, never having any outlet, never having contact with anyone other than my husband was, you know, was a radical shift. But I started researching loneliness because I was, you know, just kind of trying to understand the nature of this awful feeling. I, I, it's always, I'm always groping for adjectives and nouns to describe the feeling because part of its nature was that it was indescribable. I, I literally didn't know how to describe it. And yes, and transitory. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pervasive feeling and it's kind of slippery. And the more you try to focus on it, the further away it moves mm-hmm. almost. But then there are but then there are times like you describe, you experience brain zaps or something like brain zaps, a common side effect of, you know, coming off of uh antidepressant medication. And you had to take medication in order to sleep. And that was something you never experienced before in your life. But clearly, there was something about, and again, as you say, you were safe. Your life was relatively uninterrupted by this. But there was something else going on deeper. Yeah. So what I discovered in my reading was that that isolation has very similar effects to chronic stress, which essentially causes like full body inflammation. <laughs> And, you know, stress hormones just really mess you up in all, in all kinds of ways. They mess up your heart. They mess up your brain chemistry. And I think it, it gets hard to kind of pick apart, like, what is due to loneliness and what is due to stress? Because, of course, I was also very stressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what is due to depression? Because, of course, I was also depressed. But they are all kind of slightly different but all of them are really bad for you physically. I was I was very surprised to learn that it is, you know, it is similar to being in a state of like post-traumatic stress disorder, just to be lonely all the time. And again, as you mentioned, this is something that has been going on in kind of advanced societies <laughs> more and more. The we keep reorganizing society so that people need other people less in order to survive, but we still need each other just as much to be healthy and really just to feel normal. 
and that feeling of loneliness, which is in some ways it's similar to hunger and the way that hunger, you know, we have an abundance of food right now. And so hunger is a little bit of a false signal, but if you actually get hungry <laughs> um, because you haven't eaten enough for days or weeks on end, that hunger registers as pain and loneliness is like that, where it can be a little bit more like a craving, like, oh, I really feel like I want to go out and see people. I really want to go to a party or I want to go to a, a show or a museum or someplace where I'm going to see a lot of people. And that's the kind of level of loneliness I think I used to feel like before before the pandemic. But then it got so intense that it was more like pain, like I was starving for human contact. And another little tidbit that I found fascinating was that the quote unquote pain of loneliness or depression can actually be alleviated with like over-the-counter painkillers like acetaminophen, <laughs> just because it is sort of at a very basic level. If you like zoom in enough on your body, it's just inflammation, which is so strange. <laughs> yeah. And you cite a variety of authors, some medical some literary and you know when you're you're talking about you know the increased isolation during the pandemic uh you write i tried to tell people what it was like but it was as if i had a tumor in the exact part of my brain that would have given me the language to define it and later you quote the novelist william styron who described his depression as so mysteriously painful and elusive as to verge close to being beyond description and i guess what do you think it is about this experience that makes it more enableable than others. I mean, is it this lack of vocabulary we have for this specific type of deprivation? Because all technology, all of society is kind of pushing us toward like, oh yeah, you don't have to talk to the Uber driver mm -hmm. and you're using an Uber driver, you're, <laughs> you know, who, you, who gets to rate you and you rate them. You're both service members in this situation. You know, you order food on your phone, you get it delivered, you don't have to talk to anybody. What is it about this that makes a person so desperate to name it, but also to lack that vocabulary? Yeah, you know, I, one of the kind of great truths of my life, like <laughs> the things I believe most fundamentally is that people don't know what they want. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think... I and many other people I know believe that we don't want to talk to strangers. Like we go out of our way to avoid encounters where we will have to talk to strangers. But research shows whatever kind of person you are, no matter how much you think like you're an extrovert and would prefer not to, like most of the time having an interaction, you know, obviously a pleasant interaction, not being mugged or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> but just like an unexpected pleasant interaction with a stranger like makes people measurably happier. And yet we don't construct our lives in order to design for more of those experiences, which is strange. Like we could talk to people on the train, but we don't, you know, we do everything possible to make sure that people don't talk to us. We put earbuds in or we, we hold a book up over our face. We avoid eye contact. And, you know, it might be because one unpleasant interaction kind of burns you and, and then you just decide like, oh, I'd rather avoid all of them <laughs> rather than have an experience <laughs> like that again. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know of the cost benefit 
analysis that we're doing there well, I mean, is working out for us. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, and also to have an interaction like that, you have to give of yourself. Yeah. And if you're already exhausted from working a bunch or just being kind of overloaded from the the false sense of connection that social media or text messaging or whatever gives you, you may not feel like, oh, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> but really, it's that's what you need to do the most. Because again, the other the other fact, and I think this is also perhaps a part of why people felt really kind of burnt out and sick during the pandemic is that we had all of these venues for seeing other people's faces, but it wasn't the same as actually seeing them in person and sharing that space or seeing strangers, which is, you know, the, the main crux of your argument in your essay. Yeah. That there, there's value to seeing, there's incredible value to seeing strangers. Yeah. I mean, this essay really came out of these thoughts I was having all year <laughs> because I, I felt like I was having a slow motion crisis of the self where yeah, same. <laughs> I, I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know that I was anymore. I felt like my existence somehow had been called into question. Everything I thought I knew about myself, how I looked, how I sounded, like <laughs> every time Almost every time I did have a conversation with somebody who wasn't in my home, it was on video. And I always had to see myself there. And it made me so self-conscious in a way that was reductive of my actual self. And at the same time, I was promoting a book. Oh, God, that was a whole nother horrible part of it. Yeah. Um, so that you know comes with its own kind of self-consciousness and you're getting exposed to yourself way too much. <laughs> and so like I was doing a lot of podcasts, for example, and I have a habit of always listening to myself after I do a podcast interview. And I was just so sick of myself and I felt so like depleted after every single one of these. Like I didn't have enough time to kind of let my humanity regenerate <laughs> after I poured it out in one of these in one of these interviews. And yeah, I just, you know, sometimes I hope this isn't true, but sometimes I still wonder if like I did some kind of permanent damage that I'll never completely recover from. Like my mind does not feel the same as it did in 2019. No, I, I mean, I feel the exact same way. And I mean, I've, that sense of kind of not knowing myself has only gotten worse since I've gone back to, you know, things have gotten more normal. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's maddening. It, it's it's really hard to function when it's just like, well, I don't know if anything I'm doing is right or if this is actually the thing that I want to be doing or if this is worth doing. It's a really terrible way to live your life. And, you know, having certainty before and just being like, well, why can't why can't I regain that? Obviously, I've read articles. It's like, oh, how to make it better, like how to get rid of COVID brain. Mm -hmm. And it's, of course, it's always stuff like, Exercise, eat right? <laughs> you know, do yoga. Do yoga and you know, listen to happy music. It's always shit that like people advise for basically Everything. like if you have a terrible genetic condition that is inheritable <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like studies show that if you exercise, blah, 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 and it's like, I'm going to get it. Great. Yeah. Thanks for nothing. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a very basic advice that it's like applies to everything. And it's doing anything helps a little is the thing because yes. the placebo yes. effect works. <laughs> yes. Thank you, doctor. 
<laughs> yeah. Have you found that as you go out into the world, people are being really rude to you? <laughs> I have had some very uncomfortable, awkward encounters yeah. in the past couple of months. And it's like people just forgot how to talk to each other or there's, well, I, I sometimes think there's actually an active hostility towards other people where it's like, we, we really want to be around each other, but we also hate each other more than we did before. Well, it's so built up. Part yeah. of it's, it's so built up, but then also, I mean, I know uh, the NBA playoffs are happening right now and, you know, they had the NBA bubble and they'd have like these fake audience members and it was, it was just kind of grotesque. It wasn't fun. And now they have real people back in the stadiums but the fans are just like so loud and so <laughs> abusive like the noise of the stadium is turned way down so the pleasure of having a live audience there is destroyed but then all these fans are just like getting into these insane fights with each other and just like <laughs> going nuts and it's like okay i you know again understandable yeah. understandable but there has been this great loss of how to just be together again. And, you know, if if we lived in a better world, there would probably have been some sort of acknowledgement of this fact as vaccines were being rolled out that it's like, okay, so these are some steps you could take. <laughs> Here's some stuff you should read to know. Here's some stuff you're going to have to deal with. And instead, it's just like, well, you got the shot. You're good to go. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was one of the sort of tragic things I read about in my loneliness studies, which is that the more isolated you are, you know, the less capable you are of making friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it tends to, at, you know, like a very real measurable level, make you suspicious of other people. It makes you defensive and it makes you like more attuned to social signals, but also more likely to misread them. <laughs> so I have really noticed this, even just like, on social media or in like my group chats. Um, like oh, everyone's like, so violent. Yeah. And <laughs> just, just like suddenly feeling like everybody hates you. Right. Like these moments where you're just convinced, like I suck. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has a side chat where they talk about how terrible I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The paranoia, like this weird sort of feeling of paranoia. It's yeah. Like and I just have to remind myself that everybody else is completely going through the same thing. Yes. And I mean, speaking of that, how have people been responding to this piece? Because it seems like just me talking to you right now, we, we share quite a bit of experiences, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with the 16 months of deprivation. Yeah. You know, in a way, I'm, I'm glad that it, that it was published kind of this far into this sort of recovery period, where I feel like nerves are a little bit less hot. Yes. <laughs> Part of the struggle of last year, I felt was that there was a real kind of pervasive policing of each other that everybody was doing just around expressing your emotions. Like, mm. it seemed like when people would try to talk about this <laughs> unnameable, indescribable feeling they had, somebody was always quick to kind of condemn you for expressing those feelings like you like you weren't really allowed to express anything other than gratitude if you were if you were alive right or just sort of like well you gotta deal with it 
Yeah. And Which is also an insanely unhelpful thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, of course, on one level, it's true. I am yeah. incredibly grateful for everything I didn't lose. And of course, I did have to deal with it. <laughs> but I, I still feel like, like it would have been healthy for all of us to to just scream, like when we wanted to scream, it just felt like there were no, there were no outlets. There was no escape. And I think that's, that's backed off a little, (laughs) (laughs) but so I think, you know, when I was writing it and I wasn't sure initially, you know, when this was going to be published because I was writing it sort of around the December, January timeframe, I had a lot of fear about like being vulnerable and, looking selfish for just, you know, kind of like talking about my feelings. <laughs> like what do what do my feelings have to do with like this this scale of devastation on the economy and and death? What like what do they have to do with that? But I haven't had anyone say that to me. You know, maybe whispers in the corner I didn't hear. Nobody has told That's me. just paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody has told me that was that was selfish of you to write about your own experience. And I did feel like it was important to kind of show like I can only write about my experience, but I really think everybody <laughs> like in the world was feeling like I was feeling. Just like like suffering. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing that's so arrogant about policing those feelings is that it's like, well, yeah, there are people who are struggling to get their unemployment checks. And they're also dealing with this. Right. You know, things are materially harder for them and we need to acknowledge that. But they're also going through this really difficult psychic, this deprivation. And you and you can't, I mean, it, that only makes the situation worse. But if everyone's experiencing it, we need to be honest about it. And I mean, do you feel like there's any chance that the pandemic, and again, this is perhaps further in the future, could lead to a destigmatization of loneliness or even past that to like some understanding that human contact is a matter of public health and that there is an attempt to really address this epidemic of loneliness and, you know, this this weird sort of readjustment period we're going through now. I really hope so. I feel like loneliness is kind of most felt among older populations. And Mm -hmm. again, this was something that, you know, started well before the pandemic, but there has just been this real trend toward people not taking care of the elderly. And they just kind of get shuffled off. They live alone. They don't see their family often enough or anybody Mm -hmm. else often enough. And yeah, on the one hand, I, I'm I'm worried that in the short term, you know, COVID is only going to make that worse because we've we've only sort of strengthened the infrastructure that makes it easier for people to stay isolated all the time. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of people are like, well, I started getting my groceries delivered during the pandemic, and I'm just going to keep doing that because it's so convenient. But that, in a weird way, is like social access. Like going to mm-hmm. the grocery store <laughs> is an opportunity to see and talk to people. Going to your doctor's office and seeing them in person is different than doing a telehealth appointment. Right. And I think those those interactions are really important, especially if you live alone. 
And I, I worry that everyone's just going to accept that internet version of everything <laughs> as, yeah. as the new normal. Yeah. And, you know, you allude to this in your essay that writers are sometimes imagined as magically autonomous and self-sufficient beings, even before the internet. Now everyone can be like a writer and just sort of lock themselves away in a room of their own. I guess, aside from these, you know, the emotional and the physical effects you described, did you find that writing itself became more difficult during the pandemic or reading for that matter? Oh, yeah. Um, reading was really hard at first, partly because I was just so anxious and distracted. And that kind of calmed down and got easier for me. But in general, like the, the things that I, I have always taken for granted before are like ability to concentrate and ability just to remember <laughs> what I've been reading. Like my memory has been shot. And I, I think that's an effect of chronic stress. I think it's made worse by my immediate surroundings being the same all the time, by not being able to mark time through things like trips remembering like, oh yeah, I read that book when I was in LA for the weekend. I read that book when I was visiting my parents. Like all the books I read are in the same place in my apartment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that makes them start to blur together. And I think that really affected my writing too, just the sameness of my experience all the time. And I think that's that's part of the reason that this is one of the few kind of big pieces I've written in the past year is because everything I was thinking about went into this piece and it was thinking about loneliness and isolation. And I just wasn't getting enough other input to generate ideas. Like I, my mind is just not felt as alive. <laughs> I don't have as many ideas as I used to. And I think a lot of those ideas that felt like they were coming from my mind were actually sort of sparked by conversations with, with my friends, with my family, with other writers, hearing about what they were reading, what they were listening to, just not being so in control of my own inputs all the time. Right. And because self-isolating tendencies are common with people who have substance abuse problems or other mental health problems. I mean, did you find anything in your research that sort of laid out what damage that does or how that sort of cycle of bad self-isolating behavior might have been intensified by the pandemic where you really you really can't see other people. You really have to stay home. Yeah. I didn't dig into that too much, but I I, I have read that like people have been drinking a lot more mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. At first, especially there was this sort of free for all <laughs> yes. mentality where it was like, well, Nothing matters. All time is the same. So <laughs> why not have a beer with breakfast? Um, and then I think that caught up with us quickly. <laughs> and we realized, okay, well, we're sort of in this for the long haul. It's not like this is just going to be a 30-day lockdown where, where we can treat it like, oh, what, what do they call it in Scandinavia when it's light all the time? <laughs> Oh, yeah. What is that called? What is that called? You know, it's funny. I actually went to Finland when that was happening. Oh, wow. And it was light all the time. And it was, I went for a film festival and it was called the Midnight Sun Film Festival. It was very fun. But I do not remember what it is called. Because again, my, my brain, I can't, I, my, my memory is also kind of shot. Right. Oh, yeah. 
and but, <laughs> but people just like stay out all night, right? And don't sleep because you're not mm-hmm. you're not sort of getting those those sleep signals. And so it's like, yeah, I wasn't getting the signals that like, oh, it's the beginning of the week, time to like buckle down, go to the gym, do my work, and then I'll have fun again on the weekend. But of course, like there was a way in which that you know, kind of constant self-medicating wasn't fun mm. at all. No, yeah. And I found like my my weekends were never restorative, ever. No. Even if I no. took extra time off, I just, I never felt like, oh, I'm refreshed. Now I'm ready to get back to work again on Monday. And that that was something that I found very interesting about the return to being able to do stuff, (laughs) which started a couple of months ago. Like I would do so much more in a weekend than I did before. And that made them feel longer and more relaxing. Mm. Whereas like, I don't know, in in my mind, I feel like, well, shouldn't doing more make it go faster and make me feel more kind of worn out? But no, it was totally energizing to be out in the world, running errands, seeing people. Yeah, I found that kind of a fascinating effect. Absolutely. And COVID restrictions have been lifted across much of the U.S. And in New York, it's just like there's such an energy out there. And I was wondering, is there something about your experience of the pandemic that you feel is worth remembering and worth holding on to? The value of strangers is one aspect of that. But is there anything that you feel personally is very important to never forget about this experience. You know, something that I was so grateful for every single day was that I don't live alone. Yeah. (laughs) My husband was here with me and yeah, I could like just cry with gratitude. Like it was just so, it felt so necessary that I could hug him whenever I needed to. (laughs) Um, and, and I'm sensitive also, I mean, I know people who did get through it living alone. And I also know people who were in abusive relationships that felt more trapped than ever. And that's horrifying. I think there was actually a paragraph about that in the first version of the essay I wrote, because I was thinking about that a lot, kind of like the different circumstances that people ended up getting stuck in since they had to be home all the time. Like what your home life was like really became your whole world. Mm-hmm. But for me, yeah, I just, I felt really lucky and I just kind of love my husband more than ever. <laughs> and, yeah. Like I, I missed never being alone in some way, but yeah, I was just so glad to have him here to to eat with and um just to have somebody to hold like I feel like it strengthened our love in a way and along the same lines everybody that I, that I stayed in really close touch touch with all through the pandemic we have a close friend that we tried to see as much as possible when we were able to we we potted up and my friend Mike Walsh he would come over for dinner once a week and we spent like Christmas and Thanksgiving together. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And then in the summer when we were, were able to see each other outside, we had this whole kind of 
like symposium we would do once per week where anything new that we had worked on artistically, any writing, or he translates poetry from Korean. He would bring his translations. My husband was writing monologues. We would bring them and like perform for each other. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And that connection, like the people that I managed to stay close with, that is something that I will hold on to forever. Wow. That's a beautiful note to end on. So thank you so much for talking. It was really, um, this essay will only become, I guess, more important as the years go on and more people are kind of willing to say, hey, I should not just focus on like partying as much as I should. I need to think about what actually happened to me. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's, It's really lovely to talk to you today. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 